HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Many people in our food community have been seriously impacted by Superstorm Sandy, and our hearts go out to them. At HRN, we've been covering these stories since the storm hit. To learn more, visit our website at www.heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit hearstranch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Steve Rinella, who I almost didn't see coming in because of the camo you were wearing. I know, man. It blends right in, don't it? <laughs> but that must be a hunting thing, it right? Is, you have it to is. be. Well, because it's raining out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's raining out. And I and it's funny because earlier today, I lent, my friend was over my house, and she was leaving, and I lent her my normal color raincoat. Yeah. So now I'm running around, and it's like I'm trying to make a statement. Yeah. <laughs> But in fact, I just lent out my coat. Yeah, the no one sees me and thinks he must have lent out his regular coat. <laughs> so camo, we're associating that with hunting because you yourself are the man behind Meat Eater, That's the right. book, uh, the, the television series. So many things that have to deal with meat, hunting, gathering, not necessarily foraging because it's more about proteins, right? Yeah, foraging, I always think of uh, squirrels. Yeah. You know, I would say like he, the squirrel was out foraging. But um, I, but I do I do like to do that though. I like yeah. to hunt for mushrooms. Yeah, I used to be a, a really avid mushroom hunter, and now I'm like an opportunistic forager. Where um, I would probably never, you know, I would probably not get into an airplane in order to go forage. Yeah, but oftentimes I'll be doing some other thing and run in and be like to my friend i might be like well see that that's really yeah. good to eat well i mean i was reading about how you chose colleges um because they were close they were in the vicinity of good hunting regions always man <laughs> always i actually when when i for graduate school i had a full ride at a school and i chose to go to one where i got absolutely nothing <laughs> because i had a barroom conversation with a buddy of mine who was like colorado is played out 
it's tapped out. Like since John Denver, the place has been ruined. <laughs> He's like, you got to go to Montana. And so explaining that one to my folks yeah. was like, no, I'm actually turning down, you know, the free school because yeah. I want to go. <laughs> yeah, you wanted some big sky. Well, but I wanted to go to a place of better hunting. So you're originally from Michigan. That's right. Um, and actually my fiance's mother is from Muskegon. Um, oh, which is right next to where you grew up. I guarantee I've passed her on the highway. Yeah, yeah. There's no way I haven't. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure I passed her on yeah. 31. So, I mean, I, I know that area decently. Manistee State Park's right there. Yep. I mean, what were the first things that you started hunting for? What was in that wilderness? Because you're right by, you know, the lake as well. So, fishing and... Uh, yeah, I grew up on a lake. So, yeah. we always fished. And it's funny because you mentioned picking schools and whatnot in order to be in the proximity of good hunting. My old man always had like his Genesis story about the house I grew up in where my mother still lives today. My dad's dead. But his thing is he went out there to look at this house. Okay. And and it's on a lake. And at the time it was just summer cottages on the lake. And he caught a five pound bass. There was a boat there. And after looking at the house, he just like went out for a row you know, and had his rod and did a little fishing and caught a bass and bought the house. So <laughs> I grew up fishing on that lake. And, and at the time, w- when I was really little, so like pre us having, um, when I say us, I mean my brothers, pre us having mopeds or vehicles, we would pr- primarily hunt um, summer camp lands. We had a lot of summer camps. I in thought you were going to say summer camp kids. No, no. <laughs> We would dodge summer camp kids while hunting yeah. summer camp lands because there's just tons of summer, summer camps around. That land's all gone now. It's all been subdivided. We'd hunt that. And then we hunted a lot of agricultural land where we would know people through church, you know, or farmers through church or whatever. It would just be that you'd, they'd know you'd like to hunt and you'd go hunt their land. And, I, you know, I'm 38 years old, so this all happened 30 years ago. But this whole way of life is fading. Yeah. I mean, it's really difficult now. It's just getting harder and harder that you'd go bang on someone's door and say like, hey, you mind if I hunt your property? I mean, people have a hundred reasons to not let you. And they used to not. It's like I used to have, when I was fur trapping, I had a dozen or more farms at any given time that I had permission. When did you start fur trapping? Because I know you like caught your first fish at three, shot your first squirrel at 10, um, but commercially trapped or caught muskrat? Yeah, I started trapping muskrats when I was 10 to sell, okay? And, but, but bear in mind that I have a, my two brothers who are my main people I hang out with. Less and less now just because we're all, you know, have, like two of us have kids and it's, you know, it gets squirrely. But the, we were always like the main guys we hung out with. So they're each you know, one and a half years older than me than one and a half years older than that. So I started trapping at 10, but, but my older brother was, you know, 13. So he was kind of, you know, he was sort of like the ringleader in, in some way, but we would trap muskrats and sell them. And back then you could get, this is fur prices were still pretty good. Now muskrats are astronomical. Again, the muskrats are really valuable right now, but this was on the decline from, from the, what we call the fur boom, which is 1979 to like 1981. But in 1984, we were trapping muskrats, and you could sell a muskrat for about half of what you'd get if you mowed someone's lawn. And trapping muskrats is way better <laughs> than mowing lawns. And we would, but we lived in this kind of artificial economic world where our old man would would um, you know, like help us get traps. You know, so he might buy the traps, so all of our overhead was eliminated. So he, 
So, or he would loan us money to get traps. And then we'd go trap muskrats and we'd just trap walking or either in our canoe. So we had no expense. It was just pure profit. I kept trapping until I was 22 years of age. Yeah. And by then it was just, it was a dying thing. Trapping now, you know, there's some good markets, but I, I got away from it in a lot of ways. I got away from it because it was just impossible. To, it became impossible to make money on it. And at the same time that was happening, I was really just getting into, um, not getting into for the first time, but I was really becoming to like form an ethic a hunting ethic and i was finding that trapping muskrats so that some woman in italy who i will never meet can have a fur coat didn't mean as much to me as hunting deer that i would feed myself because i got to set the value on deer you know what i mean like i knew what my meal was worth to me yeah and and like it just got weird to be that an animal's life would have this value to it that would change according to global financial markets and stuff and so I just I just lost my uh, at the same time that it was becoming impossible to make money trapping I was losing my taste for it. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, you you talk about the economics of it and I don't think you met it in a monetary way. I mean, it it was a hobby. It was part of your family's life to do these things. And, yeah, but no, the economics yeah. trapping, I mean, you trap in order to you don't you don't want to lose money trapping. Yeah. You trap to make money. Yeah. But you're never going to make as much money as you'd have having a job. Yeah. But the point of trapping because you're not using it yourself, you're securing hides. It's like when fur markets collapse, people quit trapping. You, the point of trapping is to make money. So there it is, economical. The point of hunting is obviously not to make money. You found you're 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 putting a value, you know, on game meat, but you don't think of it in dollar terms. Yeah. Now I just strive to hunt enough, and it's perfect. This is very easy to do in this day and age. I I strive to hunt enough to feed myself year round, and that's easy for me to do. Not easy, but I know that I'll do it. Yeah, you know, I know that I'll do it. You live here in Brooklyn. That's right. Yeah, but I don't hunt here. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Where do you hunt around the the country? I have I've lived in and have family in Montana and Alaska, so I primarily hunt Montana and Alaska. Now Alaska, you know, everything happens a little earlier because of latitude. So you'll you'll like this year. I spent pretty much the the bulk of August uh, hunting in Alaska. Then in the fall, I'll hunt the Rockies. I do hunt around here a little bit, but because I have such strong connections in those two places, and I have, you know, my my two siblings are there, so I, we have boats and and all the stuff we need and equipment. And together, we own another place in Alaska. We own a hunting and fishing shack on Prince of Wales Island, and it's just like that's where I focus my main attentions. So when I moved to the east, and I moved to the east for love because of my wife, I never like made the switch mentally. You know, it's like to me when I'm here, I do work and stuff. And then I go back out to hunt on the prime hunting grounds. And in some ways, I'm a lot like um, the old traditional nomadic hunters. Like, you know, like the Nez Perce tribe who lived in Idaho and Oregon and Washington, they were big horse breeders and they fished a lot, but they knew that the buffalo hunting was way better in eastern Montana. And they would do these annual voyages that would take months to travel by horseback out to eastern Montana and they might stay out there for a year hunting. So I'm kind of like that where I go to the best places. Yeah. And to it, hunt. and it's it's not a hobby. Um it's a profession in Yeah, I turned it into a yeah, profession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I turned it into a profession and that's how I got into the writing business was because you know I liked being outdoors. And once I realized I couldn't make a living as a trapper, um I just I had never met a writer, but I just knew that if I was an outdoor writer 
I would be able to screw around outside all the time. And so I really tried hard to become an outdoor writer. Yeah, you write for Outside, Field and Stream, New York Times, yep. um, Men's Journal, New Yorker. I mean, a plethora of uh, places. Yeah, probably, like now I got to do a lot of work at Outside, Field and Stream. And I write a lot of stuff now, you know, like Sign of the Times kind of thing. Like I write a lot of stuff now for my for the television show I do. I write a lot of stuff for our website now. And I've kind of started to like that in a way because I like the unfiltered nature of it. Yeah, it's like a lot of what you're doing yeah. right here, man. It's like you know, at some level, you start feeling like maybe I know, like I know better than a lot of people know what I'd like to say. Yeah, you know, and I'd rather just say it. Yeah, like how I want to say it. You know, I mean, so I mean, what what do you want to say? I've seen a lot of media out there about what you do in your books, and I commend you for, like you said, forming an ethic and having a stance and being educated about it. Because so often uh, on something like this about hunting, about even meat eating, um, there are polarizing stances, and you're not trying to polarize anybody. No, it, it, oftentimes I get accused of saying something I'd never said, where an interviewer or, or someone. Um, and I say that with, with much love because I interview people now and then. So an interviewer would be like, so you're saying that, I'm, I'm quoting the interviewer here. Yeah. He'd be like, you're saying that for someone to be ethical or to be complete, they should go out and, and strangle a chicken, you know, and kill it themselves. It's really a point I've never proposed. And and when I say when someone confronts me that, it's like civilization is a mechanism, you know, by which we are able to specialize that allows us to specialize in certain pursuits and farm certain pursuits out to other people. So, you know, we don't process our own raw sewage. Many of us don't fix our own cars. We don't build our own homes. There's all these things that we want done, but we don't do them ourselves. And I'm totally cool with someone who like my wife, for instance, who likes to eat red meat or likes to eat meat, but doesn't really feel like, killing it themselves it's really to me no different than than flushing your toilet but not you know i mean doing the plumbing it's fine but if you feel the call to it then i like welcome you with open arms i I do think it's a great lifestyle for a lot of reasons where um the the sense of adventure the sense of of just skill being able to do something you know and do it well is very appealing to me and i like that connection to the out of doors. And I think that that's what lures a lot of people into hunting. Earlier you mentioned like to, to if you're going to do something to, to be educated about it and do it well. I think that a lot of people, for various reasons, oftentimes political reasons, will, will find that it's advantageous to align themselves or associate themselves with hunters. It's like every presidential campaign, you know, you remember like John Kerry had to go out and act like he was hunting. And, and you know, I think Romney had some comments about how he's hunted I don't know, various rodents or something like people want to like get there because it helps them establish blue collar roots, you know? And I, I, and I cringe like the, the whole Palin thing made me cringe over and over again, where she's this big hunter, but then on her show, she goes on and she clearly has no idea what she's doing. No idea what she's talking about. You know, she's like flinging bullets all over hyperventilating. And, and I hate that. Like to, I hate it when you see hunting, being portrayed by people who aren't really careful practitioners. On the other hand, you obviously there's an entry level, you know, but I think you can come at it if you want to approach hunting or get into hunting. I think you can come at it with a willingness to learn and a humbleness and in a and accepting the fact that you might not always be successful and you wind up being, you know, a great hunter. 
I would rather now I would rather hunt with people who really respect and utilize their game carefully than people who are great hunters. You know, I'm much more, if I know someone, if I go hunt with someone and realize that they don't use their game well, they don't use it, they don't treat it with respect and use it wisely, I won't go out with them. You know, I'd rather go out with a guy who knows nothing, but who's excited as hell to have a deer that he's going to go home and feed to his family. Like I'd rather be hunting with that guy. So it's not always, I'm not saying that I only like to be with experts, you know, but I think that knowledge either has to be there or you have to be striving for it. You know, you want to have it be that you're fully aware of your surroundings, somewhat aware of the history of your pursuit, somewhat in touch with why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break, come back and talk about, you know, how to gain a skill set to go hunting and that sustainable nature, which you speak of. You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, pasture-raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Hey, welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Steve Rinella talking about the pursuit, the, the the hunt, the thrill of it, but also the understanding of it. Um, we were just talking about you know the skill set. Um, I know on your site, what, uh, Meat Eater, or yep. is it the Meat Eater? TheMeatEater.com. <laughs> the, I'm assuming someone the, the had. The only one. <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming someone had, you know... MeatEater.com yeah. or com. I, I hesitate to even ponder what would be at MeatEater.com. Yeah, well, <laughs> someone else checked that out for us. But uh, you have you have a gear shop on there. Yeah. Um, what are some of the tools of the trade? Everyone just thinks it's a big-ass gun, some bullets, and then you put it, you know, mount a head on a wall, uh, and you're done. Yeah, I like, you know, I shoot like a, a, a good, high-quality rifle, but you can do a lot of hunting with a rifle that you might secure for, you know, a few hundred dollars used. I don't necessarily abide by this quote. I remember a guy saying it was some line, like if he had a thousand dollars to spend on hunting gear, he would spend 800 on his binoculars and 200 on his rifle, which what that statement is, is that, um, observation, you know, just observing your surroundings, trying to be present in the out of doors is as important as one's ability to shoot. There's there's a it's not hard to understand why in the hunting world, especially people who've hunted a long time, there's a real um, emphasis and concentration on firearms. You know, um, I know like I shoot and, and I shoot well, but I think that there are many things more important than marksmanship are equally as important. I think that a big thing would be physical fitness, um, just being aware, being a good student matters a lot. But as far as just gear goes, the kind of hunting I do, I'm a back. I'm primarily a backpack hunter or backcountry hunter. I like to hunt really remote areas, so everything I have with me, I fit on my back. I don't hunt uh, over bait. I don't generally don't hunt out of tree stands. I generally get up in semi-open mountain country or tundra country 
and get up and I'm spotting animals that might be miles away that I'm going to go after, and then I'm going to sneak in after them. So I have a backpack, tent, sleeping bag, um, lightweight mountaineering clothes, boots, a rifle, good binoculars, basic survival stuff, a knife, and then game bags that I, if I kill something, I'm going to package it up, and then I'll shuttle my kill out on my back to whether it's a trailhead or an airstrip or, or a road. And that's how I operate, and that's how most of my friends operate hunting. Or we'll hunt out of boats. We'll take canoes into an area maybe and then treat the boat sort of like a vehicle where you park the boat and then set off on foot to hunt. Um, Oftentimes in a day, I will cover – typically you might cover from 3 to 10 miles in a day hunting. Um, I will sometimes spend hours just in one spot though watching – I'm very careful about getting into the right place to look. That's really rude. My phone is ringing. <laughs> I'm careful about getting into the right place to look. But I do very bare bones kind of hunting, but I have a small amount of high quality stuff. But you don't. it doesn't have to be high quality. But if you hunt long enough, you start wanting yeah, yeah. high quality. Well, I mean, also there's a different approach and mindset to each animal or each uh, way of hunting. So yep. a deer versus a turkey fishing versus, you know, a uh, wild game. Yeah. You know, that's true. But in some ways you wind up being like, like hunters will specialize And my specialty. Like I'm a specialist when it comes to like spot and stock, big game hunting. So I just have like a general way I like to hunt. You know, What's called, considered big game? I know, I know big buck hunter. You know, as oftentimes do. people even roll in turkey on big game. Yeah. Big game would be, um, it's almost easy to say what it wouldn't be. Big game would not be waterfowl, though I like to hunt waterfowl. It would not be upland birds such as grouse and pheasant, though I like to hunt grouse and pheasant. Um, and it would not be small furred game, though I like to hunt squirrels <laughs> and rabbits. So big game would be deer, elk, moose, antelope, large, like large ungulates. Oftentimes, guys that hunt those also hunt, and I like to hunt bears, but oftentimes, the guys that hunt those will also hunt turkeys because it resembles it. You know, it's like you're after a single, you're after an animal. So I'll, I'll do turkey hunting too. And spot and stalk is generally that you're hunting on the ground and you're finding animals that are unaware of you, hopefully. Ideally, you're finding animals that are far off, unaware of your presence, and then you're sneaking in on them to make a kill, whether you're doing it with a bow or a rifle. Ambush hunting would be sitting in, in, in stands. And, and so when I grew, as I grew up, we would always hunt in tree stands and trees. Now these guys use these like tripod stands and they'll build like essentially like little cabins on stilts, you know, and, and hunt out of that. And not that there's anything wrong with it, but we'd always have things we prefer. And I prefer hunting on my feet. And that's early when I mentioned that I hunt a lot in Montana and I hunt a lot in Alaska. I tend to hunt areas where there's big tracks of public land that that having the gumption to go deep is beneficial to you where you can outwalk competition okay yeah. or out transport competition so i'm always looking for really remote rugged areas um generally i know like i do my research i'm well connected in these things like i'll go into an area where i know i'm gonna get something and i don't mind working really hard for it so if you came and told me that i could go somewhere and get something in an hour or I could go somewhere and it might take me five days, I would be much more inclined to do the five-day version because in the end, it's like I'm going to get what I need. You know, I'm going to kill enough meat to eat throughout the year, so I'd rather have it be like a really grueling, challenging hunt 
by location. Yeah. So that's just the kind of stuff that speaks to me. And I grew up doing the other kind of man. Yeah. I grew up ambushing deer out of trees, man, and where I could look across the field at a farmhouse. It's just that's what I like now. I mean, um, do you consider yourself a predator in that way? Because you know, obviously, these things, in a sense, are prey, but not you know. They're not praying in the sense that they're being taken advantage of. Yeah. Um, because I was re- watching your video where you rebutted or rebuted a vegan yeah. talking about what you do. And I thought it was a really fascinating conversation about how we are a society of predator and prey. And, you know, we wouldn't tell wolves not to hunt. Yeah, I do. Intellectually, I think of it's undeniable that humans are predators intellectually and i and i'm and i've always been a, a, a avid reader of anthropology and so you know i like to read about early man and, and, and human evolution and you know it was a very gradual um our ascent to being something other than animal you know was very gradual and so for a long time we were running around and there was other hominids running around and they were all eating and there was much more of a gradation between humanness and, and not humanists. I mean, you had these things like, like you know, Neanderthal and all these other things. And so it was, there wasn't like this clean cut line that we end here and primates begin there. And you get this understanding that like all these things, we were uh, uh, omnivorous predator. And we were able, one of the things that allowed humans to become the most widely distributed species on earth is that we were able to go to really cold environments like the Arctic or, you know, Siberia, what we now Alaska and make a living from killing meat. So we could go places and live off of large animals. And that was our, that was, in many places, that was like our niche. That was how we got by. I get, so I understand it all intellectually and, and humans are predators and, and some of us still live that way. You know, but now it's very easy to not live a predatory lifestyle and you can be a vegan and be really healthy. You know, um, we have such a, I mean, that's, it's one of the benefits of being as wealthy as we are as a culture that you can, that you can live that way and enjoy like great health because of the, the reliable source of highly variable food items we have. But with all that said, if I'm sitting in the woods and, and, and I'm watching and, and I notice a coyote or a red fox cruising along i i don't look and say like oh he's just like me i generally look at them and think like i see otherness you know i see a pure form of what i would like to be so i can't really bs you and act like we're all the same because i'll tell you one thing they're not trying to answer this question right now and i am yeah like in fact they're probably out hunting right now it's like we're we're just different but i look at it and i aspire to it you know, that pureness. Another thing that animals have that, that we don't have is something, you know, that, that a human hunter has today is we have like a sense of remorse sometimes. Um, you know, I've made, I've done, I've committed moral sins, moral crimes against nature, especially early on before I really established a solid hunting ethic. If I, I don't think that a red fox has to, to, to feel that way. I have an awareness of the finiteness of nature. So I have a sense that I have to be an active participant and try to leave the land better than I found it. So that's where you find that conserve the conservation movement and hunters are, are so well dovetailed. And in fact, hunters more than anyone else pays for land acquisition, enforcement, wildlife research. I mean, we foot the bill on all this stuff. Wildlife viewers are not footing the bill on this stuff. So we're doing all this stuff and, and I don't, the red Fox isn't. You know, the red fox isn't causing harm to the environment. And, and so he doesn't have to live in this really conflicted world that human predators do. Well, I mean, speaking of the red fox, how do you feel about something like population control then? 
You mean like where a state fish and game agency wants to try to mo- yeah. try to manage? Because yeah, I, I, I'm a, I'm a I'm a advocate of active wildlife management because really anywhere in the U.S. and even Alaska included, it's ridiculous to act as though humans have no influence. I mean, we we have a dramatic influence on stuff, and we have needs and we have wants. And I think that if you look at like the wolf situation right now in Wyoming and Montana, I mean, wolves are having however you feel about the wolf issue wolves are having a really strong impact on elk and moose populations and in, in portions of the northern rockies i mean they just are like no one argues that they are they argue about what we should do about it but no one argues that they're having a very a very real powerful impact on elk herds in my mind i find that rather than having rather than inviting wild cycles you know where right now we're in the a, a part of the cycle where we have a lot of wolves and a radically diminishing number of elk, I would want to even that out more to have it be that when we see that, we would get in there and manipulate it in order to have an abundant source of big game animals for hunters and also a sustainable population of wolves. Um, To support wolf hunting is not to say you hate wolves. Like I actually love seeing wolves i probably i know more about wolves than a lot of people i've had the experience of seeing many wolves in the wild i find that oftentimes some of your more like vocal wolf advocates haven't they've never run into a wolf they have like a a weird perspective on what makes wolves tick and where wolves are and i would tend to look at them like all other specimens of big game and i'm only bringing this up right now because there's these all these contentious hunts going on right now now they got one going to happen in wisconsin northern minnesota wyoming and everybody's up in arms about it but yeah i think that managing stuff for long-term viability and stability is a good idea and i mean you mentioned sustainability and it is a true thing for not only sustenance but for you know the hunt itself Uh, it is gamemanship but it is also uh, you know something that we live on um yeah there's a there's a jim harrison quote you know the novelist jim harrison where he said the the predator husbands his prey. And and I think that that's particularly true of modern hunters. Not always hunters. You, yeah. know, you look like a guy like Daniel Boone, like as great as he was. I mean, the guy was raised hell. Yeah. You know, he's got like single-handedly raised hell. And now um, we're, we're a little more modest in our approach and we have a much uh, better eye on our future. Well, let's talk about The Scavenger's Guide to Hot Cuisine, a book that you wrote years ago based on a 100-year-old cookbook. Yeah. Um, so there is something more than just the hunt. There is cuisine out of this. Yeah, I uh, was not. Well, I was never an adventurous eater. I grew up in the Midwest, man, and and my dad had a. He bought an industrial side, like a kitchen deep fryer, at a restaurant liquidation sale, and he kept it in our garage. I mean, this thing kicked off so much heat and smoke that it would it would he would like take whatever we shot or caught in the lake and just go up and fry it. And I grew up eating tons of fried food. And when I went and when I set out on my own, um, you know, to live on my own, I would eat game. But we would just we used to have this mantra like burgers for lunch, steaks for dinner. We didn't know how to make anything when I was in college. We'd kill a lot of deer and catch a lot of fish. But we didn't know how to cook anything. So I started casting about for ways to cook stuff. And I found that back then, like at Escoffier's time when he wrote Culinary Guide in 1903, wild game eating was really common in Europe. So you know, eventually a friend of mine gave me a copy of the book and here was all these like crazy things that no one ever eats but that just hunters would have access to like they ate a lot of street pigeon and various turtles and a lot of fish that aren't available commercially and they ate rabbits and pheasants and grouse so i just started monkeying around trying to cook 
what I now recognize to be like a very dated style of fine dining. And I realized that this style of eating that was like the really high end, you know, cooking for the, the kings and queens and all pre-World War One mayhem, that food, those food items were the, 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 the property of modern American hunters. No one else had access to it. So I went and gathered up through hunting and fishing enough stuff to do 45 courses yeah. out of a Scofier. So it took me a year to get it all. But I did a three-day, 45-course thing, all of Ooh. stuff I killed myself. Amazing. And you know what? I still use that stuff today. Like that, that turned me on to preparations and things to eat that I would never have pondered. Yeah. You know? And a lot of this is covered in uh, Meat Eater, the book, uh, through your video series, through your television series. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, the, yeah, the whole gamut. And, and I love, like, I, I love, I still love fine dining, but I also like, like caveman food. Yeah. I like to cook chunks of meat over fires. Best places <laughs> in New York to eat wild game? I never eat wild game in restaurants. No. No, because it's, you know, it's all raised, it's like raised up. Yeah. You know, it's raised up in farms. They'll just take like a livestock model, like a beef model, and just stick deer in a fence. And it just, you know, for me, it shatters the, it's just irreverent. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I hate thinking about captive elk, man. Yeah. You so, know? I mean, then what's the best places to hunt for wild game? In this area? Yeah. I have some great permissions that I've scored just an hour and a half north of town. Yeah. Um, It's out there, and you just got to, like, instead of looking for the guy that's got 500 acres, you got to look for your buddy or your friend, you know, your, like, whatever, your cousin's other cousin who owns 20, 30 acres up in the Catskills, you know what I mean? And to get on those little honey holes because you're going to have good rabbit, good squirrel, turkey, deer, all the main, all the main uh you know the main species i got a like a i got one buddy in alaska who whose aunt lives up outside of here and she's always uh texting me pictures of deer and turkeys in her yard begging me to come up and hunt because they they get into her landscaping i haven't hit it yet but there's definitely there's so many opportunities available everything doesn't have to be some crazy stuff in alaska yeah you know i love backyard hunting but because of the show i do and other stuff i'm able to really tap into places where like right now is the good old days you know but I, I could just as well feed myself year-round within a two-hour drive of here. Absolutely no problem. Excellent. Well, Absolutely no problem. I mean, there's so much more to talk about. Hopefully, we have you on again. I'm fascinated by what you're doing, by your book, and thank you for taking the camouflage off of hunting. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, you've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can hear us every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.